Hi everyone, um, welcome back to our, this is our third um, political podcast um, and uh, this session we are going to talk about uh, colonialism and the politics of knowledge. Um, I have here a couple of new voices, um, so I will go around the table and just get everyone to say hi and just quickly introduce themselves so they can say something about themselves if they, if they like. Um, and just to explain the format today, um, Matt, who has been here throughout the last two sessions as well, he'll be talking, he'll be our key speaker, and he'll be talking about politics of knowledge from a uh, Foucauldian uh, perspective. I think I said that right, but it sounds cool anyway. But, um, so yeah, hey, this is Majid, um, and I'll, I'll go around the table. So next person, if you want to just say hi and your name. Hi, I'm Blackson. Hi, I'm Lolo. Hi, I'm Kelly. Hello, I'm Martin. Hi, I'm Renan. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, so I've got you here for another about 43 minutes. So let's make the most of it. So Matt, if you want to get a start and just kind of obviously you already said hi, just introduce uh, what you're going to talk about and then, you know, go for it. Um, so I'm just going to uh, briefly go over who Michel Foucault is um, and what he was about. So he was a French a uh, philosopher more than anything, but he was also a political scientist. And he sort of came up with the idea of governmentality, which is sort of like, there's an overarching mentality that governs all of us. And the way it does this is through the production of knowledge. It does this through institutions. This can be governmental institutions, like non-governmental institutions, uh, supranational bodies, like anything. Like knowledge is everywhere and knowledge is power. He speaks about something called savoir pouvoir, which is like knowledge power, in the by by presenting someone as a fact, it therefore takes takes precedence that it then is a reality for other people who believe it. We sort of spoke about it today. Like Arturo Escobar sort of goes into detail like in his attack on economists through a Foucauldian perspective that is that they've created this body of knowledge of economics but it's very much based around market economics and neoliberal theory and that in itself is a governmentality because that field is so dominated by a particular perspective that they present the problems from their perspective but then the only way to solve those problems is through their ideas themselves like Foucault is is a very interesting character in that he sort of revolutionised to a certain extent the way that we look at the way the world is governed and the way the world is shaped. And he influenced quite a lot of people in what is like a post-structuralist, sort of post-modernist almost way. But um, yeah, so that's who Michel Foucault is and what he was about as such. Okay, and uh, in terms of politics and knowledge, because you mentioned um, he, he revolutionised the... Um, the, the area of thinking. Um, so what would you say his key concepts were? Do His key concepts, I'd say that the, the idea of linking knowledge to power was key for Foucault. And like, he speaks, he did a lot of research on prisons mm. and how the concept of prison, rather than like reforming people, is to like punish people and to actually keep them in a, in a certain mindset. Because just because we perceive someone as being criminal, does that necessarily make it criminal? And are you, are you necessarily solving those issues by locking people up? Like, uh, by no means am I an expert on it. Like, I, I did, I have a brief understanding of it because it was, my dissertation was based around certain ideas for coding, but they, they match up well with certain Marxist 
ideas. He goes further than Marx in in his attacks on on certain systems. But I'd say that his ability to link power and knowledge and the way that we produce knowledge, but also his idea of power on a, on a lower level, like power power permeates society on all levels. So you like earlier when we were talking there's power within a university. You know that you've got to produce a certain amount of knowledge, but then that university gives you mm. an authority to a certain extent to, to to give those opinions. You wouldn't have that authority without that university. That field of thought that you then work in, you're contributing to that, but you have a stake in the continuation of those ideas. For example, with development, people who work in development aren't going to want to attack development because it is at the end of the day, it's what provides them with a living. It provides mm. them with an economic basis. Like the idea that power works on lots of different levels. It's not just the overarching governmentality, but there's also power within every aspect of our lives. And power is a very, like I'd say power is probably the most important thing. And the way that power has become linked to economic power and particularly in economic prowess is, is particularly important nowadays and particularly for where well, we live in a very neoliberal free market based society like his his ideas on that sort of give us a different perspective which to approach it and analyze it as such i would say that's probably the most important for me about what, what you want anyone else want to grill him um well not just grilling but not necessarily grilling him but um, i'm just going to say um i think i sort of you know, go by you know what what you've actually said, and and I think um, uh, Foucault is is a you know he's a genius for coming up with this concept. I mean, I, I think just maybe to add on to what you said, um, the notion of power as being displaced is actually quite interesting and it's quite fundamental in the way that you know it's changed from just looking at power being sovereign, but you know each one of us sort of contributing into this you know way of government governmentality. Um, so one of the modules that I took in my final year of uh, my degree BA in sociology and politics actually covered this and it was talking about how Foucault links this to sort of neoliberalism and how this is sort of the dominant uh, paradigm that's, you know, sort of out there. That's how people are actually um, governed. Uh, and then the other thing that is quite interesting on the prisons is his uh, notion which he basically looked at the work of Bentham and how he describes prisons as being um, panopticon. Um, what that means is that a panopticon is basically a, a design of a prison which is built in kind of a circle whereby, you know, you've got the guard that sort of looks, um, you know, at the prisoners sort of observing what they're doing. Um, however, Foucault also describes that in such a way that, you know, even if the guard is not present, because of that sort of setting, that's around that structure, you know, prisoners are actually, you know, sort of obliged or they, they feel like they have to behave in a certain way because they believe that they're actually being watched. So I, I, I just think um, your topic is quite interesting. That's interesting to talk about the, the panoptic um, setup in the prison. But is that an analogy that could be applied to, uh, you know, global politics at the moment, would you say? Like, and like, if it was, how would you say that? Like, for example, there must be a prison guard and there are, I guess, um, what do you call it, agents that are set up to, you know, support the prison guard. Um, do you want to 
compare that or to like oh, link link for cause yeah. theory to sort of like modern day parts. You could almost say like that the institutions such as the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, they are all institutions that are built to produce a certain type of knowledge. They are built to produce a certain type of ideology, but also the answers that they the problems that arise from that ideology and the analysis from that particular ideological perspective they then seek to solve them using their ideological perspective. So therefore, it becomes so embedded within society that you're constantly within this sort of like supervisory state where you're being watched. And yeah, you do work with yeah. Uh, these are things that are placed by uh, with the IMF, you're tied into like, a global debt, for example. Um, you have to meet certain criteria to initially get the, the loan, and then you have to keep up with a certain standard to kind of maintain a good relationship. Um, I think... It's interesting because, uh, funny enough, I hadn't actually thought about it until you mentioned it, um, and, I, and I'm kind of trying to apply it without being, I've said it earlier today, but without being conspiratorial. But I think it is interesting where you create a system where, I think I read it in the book um, uh, by Arturo Escobar, um, so it was one of our readings today. Um, it, it talks about um, kind of America, for example, without... Like or like a, a hegemon without using the old notion of colonialism, uh, where you had physical presence and you physically had um, uh, kind of influence within the country internally. Now you have these. Um, it's like a it's a decolonized state, but you have still have influence through these different institutions, and it is this setup of a, like a panoptic um, guard system. Uh, you go. I was gonna say like even like you see like media. Um institutions they they are like the god that's watching in africa not, not just africa like the third world when you see that crisis and they're talking about like authoritarian leaders and like what they're doing and the way they are represented on the media and how like people from like the west and other areas view like these people that are being represented it's like you're judging them based on what these yeah. people are saying so you automatically think these people what they did might be criminality based on what these um that the media institutions are showing you. So it's like when you're saying like the UN and these people like they're able to like um get there or solve the problems they've created, it's like because like the media is able to paint like um the media complicit in the yeah, it's, it's part of the, the package yeah. to, to reintroduce the same like um the concepts that they try to with the knowledge they're saying that they're trying to fix these things. So, yeah, but I, I think something that's quite fundamental in the analysis as well is the aspect of knowledge as being power, because that sort of says it all. You know, knowledge is power. I think I remember um, an uncle of mine actually writing a book um, called Right is Might, and in there he actually quotes uh, the, the term knowledge is power. Um, and again, sort of speaking, in, in sort of the context that you, you mentioned it, yes, the, the media is also kind of contributing to that uh, narrative of knowledge being power. Um, media, I think media, we could, we could probably define media as a thought-producing, as a knowledge-producing institution because it does, it frames a lot of narratives, like that, and particularly the way that the media frame a narrative is really important. Like, like if we talk about migrants, for example, the media portray it in a certain way that they become a threat. Now, is a migrant actually a threat? If you look at the real reasons, a lot of migrants, because their homelands are not safe, like, and a lot of that has been destabilised due to northwestern states' actions within the global south. Now, 
to then turn them away seems wrong. Yet the media will portray that as something that they they're not they're not going to be a positive for us. That that's a production of knowledge in itself, and and people accept that as fact. And it's I suppose it's about finding a way that you can actually challenge these ideas that that are produced in these knowledge production things. I suppose we're in a university and therefore we're involved in the production of knowledge ourselves, but we're sort of approaching it from a slightly different perspective. But does that mean that we're going to be as respected within our field as people who pertain maybe to the mainstream? Well, it it depends on what sort of career that you choose. Uh, I think it was Nolo who was uh, sort of mentioning over lunch how you found it quite challenging working, you know, within the financial sector um, just because the things that you believed in did not necessarily, you know, agree with, you know, what everyone else sort of follows. So I think, I suppose, if you're going to work in an environment which is, you know, sort of aligned to, you know, maybe multinational corporations, for example, then, yeah, you, you will get caught up in, in, you know, sort of, this sort of uh, negative vibe because ultimately these organizations are performing um, according to sort of a neoliberal capitalist um, sort of uh, narrative, I suppose. Actually, one thing I was just thinking about, I just realized, because earlier I mentioned about the global hegemon, I mentioned America, right? So I'm just, re- I'm just rethinking what I've said, simply because well, 10 years ago when I, when I did my undergraduate, um, I feel like an old man talking back in the day. <laughs> but back in the day. <laughs> but, um, but it's interesting because when I studied politics at undergraduate level, the global hegemon, there was like a single global hegemon. Pretty much 10 years ago, it was like it was America, and they were they're kind of at the forefront of everything. And kind of even the de- uh, development, well, I guess I frame into development now after the, the reason that we had it, kind of, it was actually America at the forefront of it. But it feels like 10 years on, it's actually a different landscape now. It doesn't feel like mm-hmm. America is at the, is, it's not a single hegemon anymore. It just, it's it, like you say, Matt was saying in the, in the lecture earlier today about um, there are um, several hege- smaller hegemons uh, within the global hegemonic kind of influence or sphere. And so it'd be interesting, like, if, uh, what I want to ask everyone is like, how, how do you guys feel? Do you feel like there are multiple actors now um, globally? Um, who, who, who play a bigger role in influencing and shaping this kind of discourse of de- development or um, kind of the, even the politics of knowledge which plays into development, kind of helping shape what development is and changing um, what the globe looks like politically. I hope I'm not coming at this uh, from an arrogant American perspective, <laughs> but um, I do think that just because politically, economically and militarily, the U.S. has such a sordid history of, for lack of a better term, inserting its nose in places it shouldn't be, mm-hmm. um, that it is still kind of at the forefront of that global development, be it good or bad. And what you were saying about Foucault um, and the prison guard idea, I think it's interesting and I want to know more about why um, America the United States particularly being a former colony and then turning into the colonizer with different places, legally or illegally. I mean, Puerto Rico is a colony of America. Mm -hmm. We just saw a lot of terrible, terrible things happen to those American citizens who then don't have voting rights. Um, So I'm just wondering what happens when the prison guard 
or, or the prisoner turns into the prison guard, really. Very interesting. Um, but I, I, I also look at China as in the rise of China as um, sort of forming some sort of balance of power, stabilizing the you know economic uh, paradigm. Um, one of the examples that I can give is in Africa, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, admittedly, uh, America has still got a very strong, you know, as as you mentioned, it, politically, um, you know, military influence in most African states. In fact, mm -hmm. every country that America has sort of gone to, they've made sure that they've not just left ideology, but they've also um, left a military base, yeah. um, which sort of reinstates that hegemonic kind of, um, you know, command, um, you know, aligned to sort of the IMF, the World Bank, etc. But what's quite interesting is more recently, um, one of the African states in Southern Africa uh, was denied a, a loan by the IMF, uh, basically under the condition conditionality. Um, so they wanted them to sort of reach a certain expectation, you know, maybe, you know, adjust their sort of budget. However, what this country, it's actually Zambia, in fact, it, it chose to um, sort of go and take some help from um, China, to seek help from China. And China has, been, has managed to sort of fund some of its, you know, sort of uh, money that's needed to continue with development projects. And I think what China is doing you know, is actually reinstating a new type of power within the global politics. And, and that's quite, that's something significant. Uh, and it's rooted in economic uh, yeah. power as well, because I'm not sure what the national deficit for America is now, but I know we owe a lot of it to China, yeah. Yeah. if not all of it. Yeah, there's a trade deficit as well yeah. in China that's massive mm -hmm. for America, because they depend, oh, yeah. yeah. But I do think the, the shift in balance of powers uh, turning out to be um, a good thing in the world. I mean, obviously, we can't have like one gatekeeper looking after all of us. I mean, if we've got one gatekeeper, then who's looking after the gatekeeper? You know what I mean? Um, but uh, the, the, the shift to the global south, which does include China, has been, I think, all in all positive for um, the rest of the, the, the world, mm -hmm. but um, something that's been alarming for the United States of America, because I don't think they were expecting to ever lose their number one position or have their number one position contended in any way. Um, so now you see what's happening right now with the trade wars. Um, I don't know, the beginning, the end closing of market of the uh, New York Stock Exchange on Tuesday, everything yes. was in the red. Mm -hmm. And... Um, two months low and things like that and people were now stressing them the whole um because of the trade wars that are happening which it's, it's sort of i think good because it rebalances the power in the world you can't have it all in one hand mm -hmm. and we can't have only one policeman over the world mm -hmm. and in terms of africa i think it's a good thing that we have different players but i think what we should be careful of internally as an african i'm an african um is having just a different dictator. We had we had the United States come tell us what to do for a long, long time. Uh, before that, it was Great Britain and the the, 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 the okay. empires, mm -hmm. then the Americans, um, the United States came in, and now it seems like getting a different sort of dictatorship from the from the east, from China. But I think the difference that comes from China is that they they come in and they do like it's all for all economic reasons, like you said, um, but. 
Whereas what the United States did is that they came in and dictated ideologies to us, which um, I don't know, it's a, a lose-lose uh, in both senses because either way you're losing something by uh, either of these parties coming in. I think what we need to do is, is create a, a, a fairer balance of power because we, um, especially in the African context, is in a sense we do have the minerals, we do have what the outside Western world is looking for. We just need to find a way to uh, make whatever resources or the capital they work for us as a people. I think that's when we start balancing the world more fairly. Mm -hmm. But now the bigger question is obviously how. If anyone can solve the how, then you solve the world problems. Do you think we can do that? Like Africans can come together and be able to do that when, like you said, development is like power, is linked to power. Mm -hmm. So if China and um, America or um, the EU can offer these people like characteristics so that they can gain power or influence in these countries, it's going to be so easy for us to then come together where maybe like um, a Southern African country and, or um, and the Northern African country have two different ideas on how they want to develop and one's offering them that development and the other one's offering that, the other one, another development. Then it becomes like... You divide the continent and it's like yeah. if you want to come together and develop like they wanted to do in the lagos plan before like the structural adjustment policies then how do you come together when there's more gatekeepers like you said they're offering you like different things yeah. I, I do think uh with that in terms of we had the Af we have the african union that's been put together how well that works we're still not sure um i do think if we, we all every single african state has different as a different agenda. We all have different different uh, levels of development. Uh, we want different things with different cultures. Um, but I do, I, I don't personally think Europe has the same agenda across all countries. They manage to sit down and talk about it, and here they are with the European Union. And I do feel, uh, especially with Sub-Saharan Africa, with our um, Arab brothers and sisters on top. I think we can come together, even though our developmental goals are different, but we can reach them at some point. And I think when it comes to politics and having like somebody with a character and you take it, that sort of problem of greed, um, we do, I think, in terms of leadership, do need to start questioning our leadership from the inside, because I think that's where we fall short, is, is um, am I doing it for myself or am I doing it for the greater people? And I think, yeah, so it's one of the two things, coming together as a continent and um, just questioning our leadership and actually where we want to go as a continent as a whole. That raises a really good point as well about power at a local level in the who you elect because often the, not hegemons, but often these programs will want to work with people that are, that are susceptible to their ideas and they almost buy them off to a certain extent because, because money equals power. Like, there's so... Our system is so based around economical power and the power that comes with a strong economy. It's very hard unless you're you're prescribing to their ideals to sort of get any traction going in your development plans. Like we we need development from below, don't we? Like it, it can't be top down development because that it doesn't work. It destroys more than it develops. But like you said, it's it's getting people in in positions of power who actually have the best interests of the whole population at heart and the whole, and in, as you were speaking, like the whole continent, like coming together, like a meeting of the minds, like they all share a, pro, like a progressive 
view and overlook. Yeah, because I think well, too much power. Because I think I believe power is that the, almost like the it's, it's the outcome of certain processes, and then which leads to um, eventual change or dominance in a particular region or part of the world. Um, but I want to kind of bring it back to kind of um, development as uh, uh, as uh, as the progressing. Um, vehicle or mechanism for change um, into what we call modernity, and also politics of like knowledge. So, so two things. So, in the, in the lecture today, um, you know, we spoke about development as being inevitable. So, um, it's inevitable that everyone goes through that process. For example, um, in in the global south, you're getting um, the creation of the proletariat um, as a result of the global north and their business dealings and their influence within the global south. And it's re- and that's going to eventually, that's one of the concepts that was spoken of in the class, um, that that probably, that is a, you know, even though it, it, we're going through this destructive period, um, this proletariat will actually rise and, and, and go through the process of industrialization and where they will rise to fight against, the, um, I guess, the, the um, what do you call it? I mean, the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie. Yeah. So, in some ways, maybe is that what will happen in the Arab Spring, for example? Um, also, talk about policy knowledge. There's two points, sorry, and then I want to discuss, you know, throughout there again. Um, so, the other thing is, so talking about policy knowledge, so it seems like at the moment, the dominant uh, drivers of kind of knowledge are the global north. And, and I think those in the global south, it's almost like the ideas aren't coming together to create a um, because create consistency within the region. Because the global south is a huge region. You know, you've got Africa, you've got Asia, and then you've got South America. So culturally, they're very different. And historically, they're very, very different. So does it mean, again, you have a split of polytechnology from particular areas? So, for example, Africa making a movement um, through there. Um, could be institutions like universities to create these um, new ways, new social movements for Africa. And then you have those in Asia, South Asia, for example, or Asia, and then you have the South America, everyone having their own driving um, school of kind of politics. That, or is there a, um, a bigger requirement for some kind of consistent unity within the South? Because, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a very big pie, so to speak. I think uh, sometimes uh, those countries and the South of the globe, they try to make an effort like to be bigger than they are. For example, I can give you one example of Brazil. Brazil is the eighth biggest economy in the world, bigger than Italy, Canada, Poland, Netherlands. In 2010, Brazil was the sixth, eighth, big, sixth uh, big, biggest economy in the world ahead of UK. Uh, but I see these dominant great powers, they have like a closed group. They don't try you. Uh, they, they won't let you come in into this group. You only be part of this group if they want. For example, South Korea. They, there's um, one research I read one uh, once. It's called it like a development by invitation. Those great powers invited South Korea to be a great country. And so this is this is a, a, another thing. You can try. You can make the effort to be bigger. But uh, sometimes you are not allowed to be a bigger because, because, for example, if you look Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, we have a group. It's called BRICS. So BRICS is a very, very strong group. We are very united. Uh, like to do exchange of money, uh, knowledge, and everything. We are trying to to you know reach uh, the best of us together. 
but of course it's complicated. Uh, I think 10 years ago, Brazil led a coalition with Turkey, Mexico, and Indonesia, I think, calling for reform of the Security Council. But it didn't succeed because it depends on the United States, Great Britain, and French, you know. So uh, it's kind of changed your mind because uh, those countries in the power, they don't want to lose this status of great powers, you know. They, they, they will not allow those countries to come into this club. They need the global south in the south to be to uh, to uh, to they to uh, they going to stay in their position, uh, like maintaining the status quo. You know, yeah, I think he um, he raised quite some interesting points there. One is obviously that you know this is sort of a, like a club in yes, a way like a where you know you have to be part and parcel of it. Otherwise, you know. But also the the, the other thing that you mentioned is that point that you know certain people are actually benefiting from this form of, you know, um, uh, de development. You know, so development has become that sort of um, tool to hold certain states uh, to account or in order. And, and, and I think that sort of comes in with uh, Wallenstein's theory of the world systems as well, yeah. where you've got, you know, the core states, the peripheral states, the semi-peripheral yeah. states, but also... Uh, I think it's uh, Ganda Frank who raises an interesting argument when he talks about how these countries that are claimed developed um, can actually impose certain conditions of development on undeveloped states when they themselves do not actually adopt those rules to actually develop. Um, you know, the, the, where I look at it is China, you know, China or the U.S., you know, which one do you sort of pick? Um, China is sort of in that position where they're willing to help countries to develop, but they do not impose ideology. And they've, they've explicitly said, we'll not get involved in your politics, but we'll provide the money. Um, whilst obviously America is still trying to impose this uh, neoliberal sort of concept, uh, which is tied down to development. And, and I think that's problematic. However, to look at development from the South, I think the first starting point should be, you know, sort of the South questioning what development means to them. And uh, to sort of think that, you know, we can have development in the global South, I think we need to look at it on an individual basis. Country, I mean, Africa is a big, is a, is a, is a continent, you know, but within Africa, you've got about 54 states, I believe. I think each state... 51, 51, 54, so, right, somewhere there. We'll, we'll check the statistics <laughs> later. <laughs> but, but, but the point I'm trying to raise is that, so within the southern region, we've got the SADIC, for example, um, which is trying to sort of work, build partnerships. I think it was just uh, two days ago when Zimbabwe and Zambia signed a deal on, you know, sort of bilateral uh, agreements. Um, but then again, you, you have to sort of, come out of this entanglement which is aligned to the IMF. I think the African Development Bank, you know, needs to do much more if Africa is going to develop, you know, and, you know, you have to take away things like, for example, the London Stock Exchange is set in the United Kingdom, but, you know, those metals, those commodities are actually, you know, the main determinants actually, you know, 
the means of production is actually in Africa. So I, I find that quite quite interesting. Sorry, I, I'm ranting, but I just sort of thought I should add that. It there. is interesting that most of the resource bases are very materials that feel probably come from probably the least developed areas yeah. and that they're neglected. Because yeah. I was just thinking, um, if we as Africans, or all, all of us, just close the doors to Africa, and the rest of the world probably would not know what to do with themselves. And we could just sit down and talk. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think that Daffy did have sort of an that's, ambitious yeah, plan what, mm. like that. Uh, but the problem is, again, the whole military hegemonic sort mm. of, uh, you know, issue comes in. Um, personally, I don't think he had a bad plan. I think the plan he had for Africa was sort of, let's try and find a different way of creating what development should look like or should be for Africa. But then you've also got Brazil, as you've mentioned, which, um, you know, is quite, you know, a very productive country, you know. But then again, we have to bring into account the political elites that benefit from this song of development yeah. you know we, we cannot exclude that and, and the, the power that they hold the power that they hold yeah. exactly which I think, is i think it's sorry. one thing quite countries like brazil or south africa the fastest growing gdp yeah. per capita because we don't talk about distribution of that, um, that wealth yeah. it's very easy to say oh we're growing at eight percent uh, gdp per capita a thousand dollars or thousand pounds or whatever if we actually just taking a uh a, a, an entire amount and divi uh, dividing it by the population because it's just not realistically that's not how it works i mean i, I think the gini coefficient the measure of um separation of the uh, <laughs> is i think the highest yeah. between south africa and brazil mm -hmm. so i think our development also does need to just be looked at once again mm -hmm. to see exactly who's who's um winning from this development yeah, because it's and it's important. It's important as well. I think that that knowledge is produced in the global south by the global south mm -hmm. for the global south. Too much. There's too much around like Western and particularly Northwestern institutions and the knowledge that they produce. It's like it doesn't. It doesn't take into account the voices that come from the global south. The people who actually live it. The people. The ideas that come from there are often. You only become legitimate once you step across that divide into the into the western. Ex, what is accepted ideology and stuff like Francisco said about earlier like he can't even write in his own home language because he will not get the academic acknowledgement or weighting behind it that writing in English will and I think that's wrong to not be able to write in your own language because it will put your ideas at, at a disadvantage compared to ones that are written in English that something needs to be done about that well, it's, it's, you also say something interesting, and I'll refer back to you, Nolo. You, you mentioned GDP. I think the very fact that GDP is quoted in US dollars is yes. quite problematic. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that just shows you how hegemony comes into play. You know, if the global south is going to, you know, sort of restructure the way that they look at development, I think they need to start questioning all these things. Why is our GDP quoted in, 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 in the US dollar? Because remember that there's a conversion that's taking place, there's an exchange rate that's taking place. And I believe, you know, you can never have equal terms if you've got that difference in exchange, you know. So that's, that's one of the things that they also need to review, like 
why is our GDP actually rated in 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 in, in, in uh, US dollar? But also you mentioned, uh, sorry, no, you wanted to come. I think with the GDP phenomena, obviously yeah. I don't. Uh, it's important being put in USD, but uh, it, it does have to be standard. We can't have it in all different currencies yeah. uh, because. Let's say, for instance, we want to use Naira, and one Naira, uh, in terms of purchasing power, is not the same. So it's a whole bunch of other economic factors that come in, in terms of um, actually just like a, a conversion of, of, of physical cash. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, of, a GDP is a terrible measure of anything, I think, mm -hmm. yeah. because it doesn't take into account how much $1 buys in, in New York as opposed to $1 buys in, in Johannesburg or in Tokyo. Yeah. So yeah. it's not a good measure by any chance, but the fact that it's in USDs, which is for conversion purposes. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a heritage from the Second World War because when United States emerged from the Second World War, they like to have the uh, ability of to impose their um, market and everything in the world. So it's for conversion. I, I think because if it was not uh, US dollar before, it was gold. So you need uh, a currency to make the universal currency. Yeah, yes. Okay, well, I want to move the topic slightly away from politics back to knowledge, because um, because of what I'm thinking. Right? So so we talk about politics of knowledge, for example, and we talk about institutes that are the vehicles for creating this knowledge, which is universities. And so so obviously we're here at university and, and we are potentially adding to this discourse or potentially, you know, um, can add to the discourse. So how to much of is anybody that produces information on yeah. so it can be institutions it could be just like think tanks and uh, pressure groups and whatnot. But obviously, government itself is, is a knowledge producing. One more like the education system, like the way it hasn't changed for like over a hundred years or so. I was thinking like in these third world countries, they're still doing the same. Like they're still going through the same education process as like a hundred or whatever years ago. That was used at some point to keep them in the same place. So when we talk about development, like even like elections, like in third world countries when you're hearing these leaders promising like people like I'll bring development by doing this and that. Half of the people that are listening to these um, politicians speak, they don't even understand like properly as what, what, yeah, what it is yeah. or mm -hmm. what this means. So it's like, how are you going to develop if you, you don't understand what development is? And these politicians can come and say, I promise you this. Then when you elect them, they can go and just do what they want because you don't understand what is they're promising you so you can't hold them to account when they don't do these things. And when I look at it, I think like in a lot of these third world countries, that's like the problem that like they're going through the same education system that's not fostering new ideas and new thinking of like how we can solve the problems of the conditions we're still in. Well, let's, let's try and see what education is doing. Um, you know, first of all, I think the syllabus is Eurocentric. Um, you know, that is also problematic if we're going to talk about uh, development. Mm -hmm. Um, now, I'll give you an example of um, an NGO that goes out to Africa and they say, you know, we're going to build a school because we believe that, you know, schools that are underprivileged, you know, kids that are underprivileged, children that are underprivileged deserve a right to education. And by no doubt, they do deserve a right to education. However, you know, we need to sort of question what sort of syllabus is being taught in that particular uh, school that's built because oftentimes you find that development initiatives are also seen as one way of maintaining sort of hegemonic rule um, you know back to sort of the, the states that are running the, the development and 
like I stated earlier on, the very fact that an institution thinks of building a school in a country that hasn't got, you know, as many schools is actually reinstating its hegemonic power, you know, so that, again, is quite problematic. Yeah, I think there's an interesting point as well between, like, because Marxism boils it down to being like proletariat versus the bourgeoisie, and if you keep forcing these, if you force these global South economies on the or these countries onto the outside, then eventually they will rise up and they will find revolution. I think that's a bit too simple. Like I, I Mar Marx has a point, but I think that Foucault builds better on it in the idea of these institutions of power because power is also divided at a local level. Like there's there's power being exercised within even in this room like about how we talk about something how we how much we think we know about a particular topic for example like within those communities there's particular power like there's authority that comes with people talking about development there's authority that comes with people that are involved in the development process but then people might lack the the necessary agency because they don't understand it through a lack of education or they they pertain to a different ideological viewpoint that puts them at odds with it. And that, that I think is a difficulty, but definitely when we talk about the production of knowledge is how can we produce knowledge at that level considering like the power structures that are actually currently in place and how, how do you counteract? And it's very difficult to find ways to do that when to a certain extent, debate's not stoical, but dissenting voices are not encouraged as such. Yeah. Because um, one of the things I wanted to kind of get to when I was talking about um, kind of, uh, kind of uh, the process of knowledge is actually to, to what, what degree are we tied into this process ourselves um, without becoming too philosophical. Um, um, but, you know, how can we separate us? Because um, uh, it's almost like the bottom line is you have to go to development and there's no way, there's no other alternative, even though people have tried it, they've failed. There's no alternative, so they have to go through this. Um, so even China, for example, they're seen as a part of this developing process, but they've, they've taken that process and they've added their own spin to it, but it's still the same process. So to what degree that, you know, almost like it's inevitable that we have to go through it? Or is there, you know, could there be an alternative? Um, like even studying at a university in, uh, in, in the global north, obviously you're, as much as you, you want to think that you can think outside the box, you're always going to be influenced to a certain degree. By the culture here, so a lot of the global leaders come and study in the global north, um, and even the ones from the global uh, global south. The idea is you, you study and you go back and you apply back to where you came from. Um, so even then, there's a lot of influence there. So could we like this is a very big question. I don't think there is necessarily an answer to it, but could we actually move away from this idea of development as it exists? the location of knowledge specifically within higher education is problematic because like you were saying about um, you know most of these universities being located in the global north everybody's heard of Harvard Yale Stanford Stanford Oxford Cambridge mm -hmm. England and the United States a lot of people sitting at this table have come from other countries to study here because mm -hmm. this is where the means of higher education is located. And I feel like if maybe that was more evenly distributed in the global south and different countries, then we wouldn't have this pressure on a very neoliberal, a very colonized education being put forth and then distributed. Very, very interesting point. Um, but 
you know, I think on the question that you asked, so are you saying is there any other way that we can, you know, sort of look at it in terms of... Um, yeah, so I think obviously like, you know, like, um, like Kelly said, obviously with the way education, um, you know, being a, quite a huge factor in, in global influence, yeah. um, and in terms of the majority of the global education, the, the primary locations are, or the key locations are in the global north. Yeah. Um, so that in itself kind of means that it's difficult for us to separate itself from this kind of vehicle that mm -hmm. we're in on development. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is like, it was almost like a cry for help, right? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> does anyone else here have an idea or think that there is an alternative or there could be an alternative from anything they've read or they've come across? I think we have the power to, to give voice to voices from the global south. Oh. But it's... It's, it's all the cho the choice is all on I'd say if we are brave enough and if we're radical enough to sort of make a point of those because there are there are different ideas there are different social movements there are different ways of looking at development in the global south that are taking place though like, for example the Zapatista movement in Mexico is quite a radical in Chiapas state is is a radical way of looking like they 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 do not live by the same rules as the rest of Mexico and they, they have almost taken control of certain areas but are they allowed to do that because it doesn't really affect the economy on the whole like they're just they're, they're affecting a very small part and they're very enclosed and because they don't impact on what's going on around them they're allowed to just do that do we need to take those ideas and grow them and give give light to them in the global north or do we actually have to like move our thought producing institutions to the south like that's that's another interesting point to me. Do we need to go actually to the field as such, or can you give give them a voice from the global north? I, I think I think you need to certainly learn you know the stuff that happens in the global north in order for you to actually you know one appreciate knowledge in the wider context. But also, it's also good to incorporate the knowledge that's evolving from the global south. That's the way I look at it. I mean, you mentioned that, for example, uh, you know, a lot of people come here and they acquire that knowledge and then they go back and they implement it. Now, I see that as a good and a bad thing. A good thing in that, you know, when you acquire that knowledge, you're able to have a wider, you know, perspective on looking at things, but also... I think the problem, and this is the problem that happened with most uh, colonial states, was right after following independence, these states abolished a system that was sort of ancient to them, um, and yet they implemented the same structures. You know, and, and I think that is where we've got the biggest problem in the global south. We're trying to get rid of a system that was unbeknown to us, uh, but then we implement the same sort of, you know, areas of, you know, let's build roads, let's build airports. Let's, so it, it, on one hand, we're taking away, but we're just implementing the same things. Um, but in terms of knowledge, in terms of university, I think I feel privileged, you know, to have the knowledge that I gained in the Global South and also the knowledge that I'm gaining here because I think everything, you know, is what's going to shape who I become in future. That's from a personal perspective. And any last few comments for everyone to wrap up? Um, Everyone say something. You want to say before we finish? You want to say something? No. 
Okay, so basically we are at a cut point. We've gone beyond the forty-five minute mark. So I'm, I'm very strict on the uh, timing, as you guys know. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for your contribution, everyone. Um, just a just a quick short summary. So obviously the idea was about uh, politics of knowledge and looking at how it contributes towards the vehicle of development. And obviously, in terms of solution-wise, I think they're kind of uh, the jury still out there. Um, but there are ideas out there, and the question is, how do you allow those ideas to flourish? So like I said last time, just like any social scientist, we have no answers, we only have more questions. But anyway, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. And hopefully we can be back next week. Uh, we'll have someone new and a few of us that are old. Um, so, yeah. Bye, everyone. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you.